I would um, get people to focus on the real problem, which is habitat destruction. Today I'm talking to the brilliant but elusive Edward D. I've been trying to get Eddie on the podcast since we launched in early April. Eddie is the plants man at Borough Nature Sanctuary and founder of the National Collection of Borough Flora in our Borough Botany Bubble. Since starting the collection in 2012, Eddie has managed to display and propagate the stunning array of foreign flora that grows on this special and fragile landscape. Each plant, whether it is a wild orchid or a tiny gentian, needs particular growing conditions, soil precipitation, pH, sunlight or shade, and Eddie has managed to display them all happily together in the botanic collection, despite predictions from many sources that this was impossible. In 2018, funded by the Botanic Gardens Conservation International, Eddie and staff at Borough Nature Sanctuary visited the Jardin de Soyer in Mallorca, home to the National Collection of Native Plants of the Balearic Islands. This collection is a fully functioning display, propagation, seed bank and repopulation system. Plants are used to repopulate degraded areas. It is especially useful to Borough Nature Sanctuary as they share many soil conditions and a crossover of our Borough orchid species. Thanks to Magdalena Fornes and the staff in Soyer for generously offering their expertise to help support our efforts. Since then, under Eddie's management, the collection at Borough Nature Sanctuary has partnered with the National Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin as a site for seed collecting for Ireland's new National Native Seed Bank. And the first seeds delivered to the seed bank were from the bee orchid that grows in the Burren Botany Bobble. Eddie's expertise and commitment to the collection and nature in general is exemplary. He is multi-talented. He's also a silversmith and makes silver jewellery in the winter months and is the bass player in the band Awesome Adudu. Welcome, Eddie D. Hi, Eddie. Thank you so much for being on the show. I've been trying to get you to do this since April. You're the most difficult guest to um, get on the show. So thanks a million. Do you want to tell us where we're sitting today to do the interview? Okay. Um, we're sitting in the Burren Bubble, which is a collection of native Burren plants uh, that we put together uh, in 2014. We started. Um, we have a wall garden outside with a similar collection. Um, Mary's responsible for this amazing piece of architecture and I have uh, landscaped it and um, done the planting. I take care of the plants here. Really good. And how did you become a nature lover? Um, tell us a little bit of the background. I was very lucky um, insofar as I grew up in East Yorkshire on a farm beside the sea and uh, we didn't have a lot of contact with other kids and we were left to our own devices to entertain ourselves and I was always uh, fascinated by newts and we had a lovely pond uh, on the farm and you literally could just stick your net in there and pull out a newt and we had buckets full of newts poor things and um, also butterflies at that time there was a lot of butterflies around and I used to collect butterflies and moths and um, that's basically where it all started. I, I was quite young. Um, I was probably six or seven um, when I really started getting interested in things. And 
looking at books. Uh, my parents were good. They bought me good nature books, encouraged me. My sister encouraged me. She was uh, really into the wildflowers. Um, the rest of the family, my brothers, uh, were much younger than me, so I didn't really um, have much influence on them. But um, it, I was very lucky. Lovely. Lovely. And when's the last time you saw a newt? Um, actually, sad as it may seem, um, at my father's funeral, we were all back at the house and uh, I had bought a tree which I wanted to plant for uh, my mother, who had died uh, a year previous. And I went to get water and there was very little water left in this barrel, and I tipped the barrel, and under the barrel was a great crested newt, which are actually quite rare at this point. When we were children, there was a lot of newts, and there was a lot of great crested newts, but now they're actually quite rare. And there was this male great crested newt, beautiful thing, yellow belly, black, big newt, about four inches long. Now that's really special, really special. What kind of tree did you plant? Um, I planted a hawthorn tree. Um, it's called Paul Scarlet. It's a red uh, cultivated variety. It has red flowers. Oh, that's so lovely. And what um, do you have a favourite plant or animal? I know you have tons, but what's your favourite animal? My favourite animal is undoubtedly a badger. Um, I think the badger's had a really tough time of it in the last. 40 years, really. Um, and in Ireland, it's still been persecuted every day. Um, and I just find this horrendous. I find it horrendous that um, there are vaccines available for TB, for badgers. There are, you know, they've been doing tests. They've run the, the show. They've uh, areas where the badgers have been vaccinated. In Wales, for instance, in Northern Ireland, They've actually a small area in Wexford, I think, where they've actually been trying to uh, get that program running. But it's mostly lip service and they're really not towing the line. The problem is the farming uh, industry is such a big lobby. And so the vets make an awful lot of money out of this game. Testing TB is bread and butter for most vets, I think who are dealing with cattle. So that's not going to stop in a hurry. And also there's private enterprise killing badgers, basically, and they don't want to put themselves out of business either. So it's not going to stop in a hurry, really. This mm, so we, need, we need a voice for the badgers. There, I, is, there is a voice for the badgers. There's lots of voices, but they're not getting heard. Usual story, the government pays lip service and talks about their environmental issues and things, but nothing changes. Yeah, I got um, a really sad text from the Department of Agriculture the other day saying, protect yourself from wildlife, contact us now if you have badger sets on, our, on your land. Um, now, luckily enough, I don't think I told you, Eddie, I did get a call from a local department vet saying that this area of South Galway is um, a vaccine trial area, and he wanted to know if we had any sets, but I had got the general text that went round to every farmer in the country, ring in so that we can dig out and kill your badgers. Um, it was just, uh, gave me shivers. It was just a shocking thing to receive. 
and the badges um, if they're vaccinated. And in the Burren, I think they've put up special water, uh, water, watering things for the cattle, which are slightly raised up, and the TB isn't being transferred from the badges. But why do you love badges in particular? Um, they're fascinating creatures. Um, they're a whole lifestyle. Um, the fact that they, the sets can be there for hundreds of years, and the runs that they make. Generations of badgers have used the same runs. Um, also, they're very good at regulating their population. Um, they're pretty organized. They're very clean creatures. They clean out their, their sets regularly. And um, they're um, just very entertaining things. When you, when you see um, Attenborough did a really good uh, DVD uh, film. Uh, documentary about badgers and, and they were filming inside the set throughout the year and just to see what's going on inside underground is quite fascinating um, I just find them lovely things and I think it's just terrible that they've uh, been treated the way they are and uh, it's totally unnecessary and never mind the history um, of badger baiting which still goes on in this country behind closed doors, they just get a hard time. Yeah, they're, they're lovely creatures. And I mean, what do they eat, especially at this time of year? What do you think the they're badger, out looking the, for? The badgers mostly, the main diet is, is earthworms. Um, that's what they'd go for before anything else. They eat fruit, they'd eat young birds if they could catch them, they'd eat anything, basically. They're pretty omnivore, really. Um, but mostly... Earthworms is what they like. Um, if they're really stuck, they'll eat slugs. Um, they'll dig up uh, wasps' nest even. And hedgehogs, unfortunately. And it's well known, and I've read a lot of papers uh, that have been done in England about this, that wherever you get densely populated uh, badger population, you're going to get no hedgehogs because the Badger seems to love hedgehog meat. <laughs> right. Um, it, apparently, if a fox attacks a, a hedgehog, you'll see that he'd he leave most of it. Whereas if a badger attacks a hedgehog, he takes everything except the skin. That's all that's left. Everything else gets eaten. Wow. And they're very good at opening the, badger, uh, the hedgehog. They're, they can... Uh, Prize it open. They've got very strong claws, sharp claws, and very sharp teeth. And uh, the hedgehog stands no chance. <laughs> yeah, they have a reputation for having a very strong bite and being quite vicious. Uh, that's only really if they're cornered. But they do have a very strong jaw. Yeah, well, well that's where the badger baiting has been such a, a big thing over the centuries because they're such a powerful creature for the size. And... Uh, they will fight their corner. We got a call from our local vet one day saying that uh, a badger had been found on the road. She'd been knocked down. And would we like to take her because she wouldn't be able to survive out in the wild. Uh, she was in somebody's kitchen and she was a real pet. You could pet her and she was very quiet and, and lovely. Um, but she seemed to have something a little bit wrong with her. So would we take her on? 
So it took me a couple of days to work out if we could get a license. And I got back to the vet and she said, oh, no, we had to let her go. She obviously got a bump on the head. She came back to her senses and she was very cross. <laughs> so <laughs> she, she survived okay. But people do uh, take on cubs um, as pets, you know, when their parents have been uh, excavated during these eradication sessions. And uh, they make very good pets, apparently. So. Oh, they're lovely. Lovely. Um, the, well, the next question is, do you feel spiritually connected to nature? Oh, definitely. Um, more and more as I get older. Um, it's really my whole reason for being. Um, I'm lucky to have a, a lovely place where I live. I've spent my whole life building it up to make it a wildlife habitat. And the uh, first thing I do when I get home is, is walk around the place, see what's happening. And we know, myself and my lady, Karen, where all the nests are in the spring. We're looking out for all the different birds. We, we spot all kinds of things and we, we know where the little voles are making holes. And we look out for wood mice. With a, we have a wildlife camera. And... Uh, I'm just blessed, really, in that way. And you have a badger set on your land and a little stream that runs through it. Um, the badger set was about 100 yards up, uh, downstream, actually, from my land for the border. And they, we used to put peanuts down and they would come almost to the house. Uh, we'd catch them on the camera. And uh, otters as well on the river. Surprisingly, at the same time as the badgers. And uh, one day we had a machine downriver and I knew it was uh, the badger set. And they dug them out and we heard a couple of shots and that was the end of the badgers. So we've no badgers. But the good news is um, where I live, there's a, a lot of uh, ancient woodland pockets, just little islands. Uh, isolated oak wood, holly, hazel wood, and um, and the badgers were eradicated from there. But it's a nice secret. I shouldn't be really saying this, but they're actually coming back now. Um, we've spotted activity there in the last six months. Oh, that's great news! So, what positive action could you suggest for people that would be easy for people to do to help nature or their local wildlife? Um, join groups that, that are actually actively doing things. Um, for instance, the Irish Wildlife Trust have branches all around the country and they do all kinds of projects and try and in, encourage kids into their groups. And um, there's, there's all kinds of things that people can do, you know, and even in their own gardens to... Um, Try and encourage wildlife and, and, and let places be wild, certain little corners even where you can have a few nettles for your butterflies. You know, there's, there's um, the peacock butterfly and the red admiral and the small tortoise shell exclusively needs nettles 
for their caterpillars to survive and, and, and come to fruition, become butterflies. So leave a little patch somewhere wild and encourage nettles. That's what I think. Great, great advice. Uh, do you have a suggestion for an inspiring nature book or one you'd like to recommend for people? Um, my sister was 70 recently and I had a book that Karen bought me, my girlfriend, and it's called The Great uh, British Year. And uh, it's wildlife throughout the year, and it goes through every month and every season and uh, all the things that are going on. And it's not over the top, um, but it's big book. It's, it's a coffee table book. It's got beautiful photographs and great information not overpowering for people that um, don't want to read too much about nature but want to know and uh, are interested and it's it, it's just a, a really beautiful book and um, it's a BBC uh, program that was on I think called the Great British Year and uh, that's, that's, that's the book it's, yeah. it's, it's a thick book and it's just full of beautiful photographs and information anyway that's a great suggestion. I haven't heard of that one, so that's another interesting one to look out for. Uh, do you have any YouTube videos? I know you were talking about some people on YouTube that you'd like to tell people about. Um, I can't remember the name of this guy now. Um, he's a Chinese guy. He's American Chinese. And he is uh, going around... Um, advising people how to re-green the planet and there are areas in uh, Egypt that were complete desert and these areas now are growing trees and plants and the water's running again and the same thing is happening all over the place um, wherever he goes he leaves the, uh, the track behind him that the water comes back. The water table comes back with the plants. Um, and even in China, the Chinese are doing amazing work transforming massive areas of degraded land uh, back to green uh, productive land and trees and plants and water. Important, get the water table up because the water table has been pushed down by deforestation, mostly. And once the water goes and the trees have gone, that's the end of it. Desert. So get the trees back, get the water up. And uh, that's one of the main things I could think of. Um, yeah, we'll find his name. I'll put it in the show notes. We'll get it afterwards. The other, that's the other, the other thing... Um, I think people should know is uh, that there's an awful lot of lies going on in the whole environmental movement and it worries me. Um, even my hero David Attenborough has been guilty um, of perpetuating this problem. BBC, respectable as they're supposed to be. Um, put out these 
beautiful films, but they tell people lies, and uh, that just breaks my heart. That they have to use that, they have to use lies to try and get people on board, and it, it, it's not the way. Um, Can you give us an example of? I think one of them was was it the polar bears? The, the example or? is a, a polar bears, for instance, like. Back in 1970, polar bears were almost extinct from overhunting. The population was down to 5,000, I think, uh, polar bears in the whole of the Arctic. That was the survey done then. There's 35,000 polar bears now. So obviously the polar bears are doing quite well and have been doing quite well. And they've been around a long, long time. And they've seen many changes in climate. And also, it was talking uh, on this particular uh, video about the walruses. And the walruses had no place to go, and they were all falling off the cliff, and they're all dying at the bottom of the cliff because they had no sea ice. It's absolute rubbish. There was a documentary made in the 70s, and it showed the very same thing. And the reason is that the walrus population goes up and down constantly, just like lemmings. They overpopulate themselves. They've got no place to go. Also, the polar bears are very clever, and they can push the walruses up the cliff to make them fall off the edge. And there they are waiting at the bottom of the cliff, so they have a big feast. So there's an awful lot of lies perpetuated by the BBC. And unfortunately, David Attenborough is guilty of being involved, which is an awful shame. Yeah, I suppose it's uh, trying to shock people. I mean, we've all seen the picture of the audience when they're watching the terrible footage of the walruses. I mean, nobody wants to see that. It's horrific. It is horrific. Uh, but this, the reality of what's happening with nature is slightly different. The problems are different, but they might not be so uh, dramatic for people to see. Uh, what, what do you think David Attenborough or BBC now should be talking about or should be filming? Well... The first thing that should happen is the lies have to stop. The IPCC has to stop perpetuating this rubbish about global warming. Um, it's, I'm doing a lot of research in this field, and I have been doing it for a long time, because I was very worried about it when the whole thing came up 20 years ago. It, it started to be a big issue. And what I've discovered since, and I have people here in my pocket that will verify all this information. There's a Nobel laureate. His name is Freeman Dyson. And he will tell you that CO2 is one of the most important gases on this planet. There's also another guy, and his name is William Happer. And he will tell you the same thing. He will tell you that CO2 we were almost completely out of CO2. Most of CO2 had been taken up with coal under the ground, limestone rocks, all the dolomite, all these things full of carbon. The carbon sink is massive on the planet. And it, going back 60 million years, when there was much more carbon around, there was a lot more plants. We got to a point where there are certain plants that have developed now 
in more recent times, and I'm not talking in the last 20 years, I'm talking like in the last thousands of years, few thousand years, they've developed, there's, there's, they're called, there's, uh, there's three and four, the three plants, I can't remember, it's much more technical, but three plants are able to um, use carbon dioxide, but they need an awful lot of water to, to get the carbon dioxide out of the air. So they're depleting the ground of water. First thing, carbon dioxide, lack of carbon dioxide depletes the ground of water. Secondly, the other plants like um, that are well adapted to growing in dry conditions like maize, um, is it doesn't need the, the amount of water to get the carbon dioxide. It's, it's adapted to the lack of carbon in the air. So what's happening now with more carbon in the air from human activity, as we know, it's actually minuscule really in comparison to what the amount of carbon that's been produced by the oceans and everything else, carbon dioxide, natural gas, this idea that it's a poison is just absolute rubbish, which really annoys me. They're making carbon dioxide out, out to be the, the evil gas that's killing us all. It's not at all. It's actually very beneficial to the, the human race and to the planet and to all plants. It's a well-known fact that if you grow lettuce in a huge greenhouse, you pump carbon dioxide in there. That makes your lettuce grow much faster. So this is the whole thing. We need carbon dioxide in the air for the plants. The planet is greening from the satellite pictures. You can see the Sahara is getting greener. The planet is getting greener. It's actually percentage-wise, it's growing fast. There's more carbon in the air. There's more green areas. The deserts are greening from carbon dioxide. So what's the global warming, or do you think there is a problem with global warming? I don't think there's a problem with global warming. I have plenty of information uh, which people can check out. There's a guy um, on a very simple level. Uh, if you go onto YouTube and look under philosophical investigations, three days ago, this guy put up a video which explains... Um, the last uh, 12,000 years since the Great Melt, he shows the level of carbon dioxide rising constantly since that time. The temperature has been going up and down like a yo-yo. There's been very warm periods where civilization thrived, where the Roman Empire grew, the Greek the Egyptians, all these people uh, created huge empires during the warm period. After that, there was a cooling period. Devastation. Cold makes devastation. People eat each other in cold weather. The ice ages, cold, horrible. Nobody can live in cold. People live in warm. The temperature has been up and down constantly over since the last big melt and there's been some very cold periods and the last one was uh, this uh, little ice age which was in the 1700s and 1850 it finished and during that period it's well known that people starving to death so we don't want cold we want a little bit warm 
Um, the temperature, is, as I said, is up and down. It's actually, when you look at the general graph, it's pretty constant. Global warming, in the sense that it's a big uh, fear for human race, is absolute rubbish. And if people would only look at the science, the proper true science, they would find that out for themselves. There's other things going on behind the big global warming picture. So what do you think about rising sea levels and things? Is that it's just all, a consequence of a natural... There's no problem? rising sea level either. And um, I was looking last night even at um, a documentary and it's called Arctic Sea Ice Change. And it's winter ice edge of the Arctic. And the record started in 1579. And the sea ice goes up and down as well. And mostly it's down to sunspots. The, the temperature in the Arctic comes from the bottom of the sea. It doesn't come from above, it doesn't come from the sun, it doesn't come from any global warming. It comes from the bottom of the sea. And it takes hundreds of years for that cycle, that cold water to move around the earth and to come up into the Arctic. There's time back in the 30s there was a channel through where people would get could get across. I can't remember the name of the channel now. They could take boats through that channel in the summer. That hasn't happened since. The ice edge is much the same as it was back in 1780. And the record is there. The guy, his name is Eric Solheim, which is S O L. H-E-I-M, and it's called Winter Ice Edge Records, and you'll see that on YouTube. Um, what else is there about that? Well, what do you think would be, um, well, I suppose we could just slip in the last question and it might get you back to what your train of thought. Sorry. If you had, no, if you had a magic wand... What would what one thing would you do for the planet today? I would um, get people to focus on the real problem, which is um, habitat destruction policy. Uh, in Ireland here, we see massive habitat destruction all around us. Farming policy run by Chagas. When, on the other hand. They're telling us, oh, yeah, we've got this green agenda. Rubbish. They're destroying the place. They're ripping up the burren. There's um, wholesale planting of ryegrass. Farmers get paid by the uh, acreage, um, and they make damn sure that there's no areas left with any uh, hedges, Briars, any briars in the corner, you don't get paid for those, no. So people want to keep their land clear. There's no wildlife corridors. There's no food for wildlife. There's, what we're left now is little islands, pockets of places where wildlife can survive, but they can't connect. What we need is wildlife corridors. Farmers need a policy. There needs to be new policy for wildlife integrated into this green agenda. 
where farmers are paid to leave a corridor around their field so that the little islands where there are wildlife, i.e., like I was talking about the woodland where I live, there's a few pockets there, there's three pockets of, of native woodland. And I see there again the river. They come along with a digger and they scrape all the sides of the river. Oh, we have to clean the river. We have to keep it clean. The water has to flow. Yeah, but what about the wildlife? What about the, the, the corridor of the river? That's gone. And it takes years to come back. What about the little creatures that are running up and down the, the riverbanks? They can't move to the next woodland. What about the birds? They, 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 they don't like flying over open fields. They, they need the trees. They, they hop around from one bush to the next. They need food to get there, to get to the next island. So you end up with these little islands with creatures that are going to become extinct ultimately because they don't have the, the biodiversity needed to survive. So, basically, there has to be new look, new approach, if we're serious about wildlife protection and habitat destruction, and forget about global warming, because that is just a big diversion, and it's taken away all this energy and all the people that are interested and could be doing things positively, it's taking their energy and sucking it away because they're all worried about global warming and dying from getting boiled to death. It's just unbelievable, actually. Well, I think that's a really beautiful um, thing for the magic wand, the wildlife corridor. Um, I saw a guy on Twitter, he's in England with a big farm, and he did a wildlife corridor throughout his large farm. And it would be so good if we could join all these wildlife corridors together. Absolutely. The Borough Nature Sanctuary is 50 acres of a sanctuary for animals and plants and everything. We are utterly surrounded by single sward ryegrass, um, foxes and badgers being poisoned and shot. Um, we're, it's a complete island. And if the animals manage to get to the next bit of cover, it would be very hard. Uh, but there's good news. We saw a buzzard here the other day. So buzzards are coming back. And there are positive. What positive messages can we end on? What's a positive message for the nature in Ireland? Let's try and pick something. <laughs> it's a hard one. The positive thing is that there are people like Mary, and hopefully I like to think I'm included, and other people that I know, my neighbours, that care and want to uh, make little reserves for what wildlife we have. And hopefully um, those creatures that live on, on, in our reserves will be able to spread. And there, hopefully there'll be more enlightenment down the road, which has got to come. Uh, we can't have the darkness forever. Um, do you know, like, I was listening to a guy on the radio uh, and he was talking about the um, curlew population. And we all know now that curlew population is almost extinct in Ireland, whereas 20 years ago you could hear a curlew anywhere in, in, in the wetlands, inland, in the breeding season, there would be curlews all over the place. These days, very hard to find curlews. There are some people, there are some farmers 
that that are uh, changing their way of looking at life and uh, looking at the way of farming and uh, definitely more interested in preserving nature instead of destroying. Um, so I think that movement's growing. Um, yeah, I think the first step is trying to connect people with nature. And I think one good thing out of the whole pandemic is that people have been forced to stay at home and just look at their local tree or whatever it is on their road. And, you know, there's been quite a growth in interest in the local natural history. So that's one good thing about this whole lockdown situation. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um there seems to be um, people have got time to uh, to stop and look. Unfortunately, most people live in cities, but um, hopefully they'll uh, get out and breathe some fresh air and and and, and uh, touch the earth. Well, that's a good place to stop, I think. Thank you very much, Eddie, because I know this is the last thing you wanted to do. <laughs> So I really appreciate it and lots of really interesting, um, some controversial issues there and, you know, really showing your great passion and love for wildlife and nature. And thank you so much for everything you've done here. If without you, we wouldn't have any of this collection. Well, thank you, Murray. Um, and I'm so happy to be working here for you. Uh, I love this place. And I hope to continue. Um, I'm hoping to retire next year, but I'm hoping to continue working at the Burren Nature Sanctuary. And uh, hopefully we can educate people and uh, encourage people and uh, make the world a better place. Great, because we won't let you retire. So thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Nature Magic. To celebrate our 20th episode, eventually persuading Eddie to talk, and the launch of the print version of the Nature Magic book available on Amazon. We are giving away five copies of Nature Magic, How You Can Engage Everyone with Biodiversity to the first five people to give us an honest review of the Nature Magic podcast. It's easy. Scroll down on your phone to the bottom of the podcast to reviews. Click on the stars and take a screenshot. Email it in to us. The email address is in the show notes. Please subscribe and tell your friends. We have some more exciting guests lined up. Stay safe and remember our online shop for your Christmas shopping, where we have a lovely selection of Avoca rugs on sale, animal adoptions, our native tree planting project, and much more. Thank you for listening, and we hope you're inspired to take action for nature. <laughs>